One thing I especially admire about Jesus Christ is that he was always laying things right on the line. He was a radical. And because he was a radical, he forced people into a decision. You know, there's one thing about a radical, and that is you can't be neutral about a radical. They force you into an opinion. Either right or wrong, they force you to an opinion concerning them. Jesus was a radical. He gave no place to be sitting on the fence. Now, there are a lot of people that sort of make the practice of their life sitting on the fence. We'll just watch and see the way it bounces and then we'll jump in, you know. But Jesus did not allow people to take a neutral stance for him. In fact, he one time said, if you're not for me, you're against me. You see, you just can't be neutral. You can't just pass him off. He wouldn't let you. He forced you into a decision concerning him. One day Jesus was talking to the scribes and he said unto them, What think ye of Christ? Whose son is he? And really, he just brought it right down to where you live. Whose son is Jesus Christ? Well, Mary and Joseph got caught messing around. And so they made up a story. Or some young guy in Nazareth and Mary got together and Mary made up a story and told Joseph to cover the whole thing. Or he was the son of God. What think you of Christ? Whose son is he? Now, if he is the son of Joseph or some unnamed young man in Nazareth, then we might as well close the book and go home. There's no sense of gathering together. There's no sense of worshiping God together or building churches or anything else. The whole thing is a big farce. And all of those people through the centuries who have believed in Christ have been actually duped. And all of the hospitals and all of the schools that have been built in the name of Christianity are all just so much phoniness. If he was the son of man, Joseph or some other, but if he is the son of God, then you had better pay attention to what he had to say because your life depends upon it. What think ye of Christ? Whose son is he? You know, there are a lot of people that try to say of Jesus, well, he was a great man. He was a great teacher. He was a marvelous philosopher. Not so. If he was not the son of God, then he was the biggest phony who ever walked on the face of the earth. He's the greatest liar and the biggest hoax who has ever lived. You can't just say, oh, he's a good man. He taught us a lot of good things. Because if he was not the son of God, then what he had to say is worthless. And rather than quoting his phrases, we should be speaking of him with hisses and derision. You can't just put Jesus on a nice pedestal and say, well, just a great guy. What think ye of Christ? Whose son is he? You know, whether or not you believe in him as the son of God, you do have to acknowledge with all honesty that he has done more to t change the history of mankind than any other single individual who has ever lived.
Name to me one person in history who has done more to alter the history and the course of human life than Jesus Christ. If you wrote a check today, 1928-1977. 1927-what? 1977-1977-1977-1977-1977-1977-1977-1977-1977-1977-1977-1977-1977-1977-1977-1977-1977-1977-1977-1977-1977-1977-1977-1977-1977-1977-1977-1977-1977-1977-1977-1
then I am broadening all the more the chances of it coming to pass. And if I say there will be a loss of 7,280 lives, then you see I'm expanding more and more the chances and I am having actually more and more of a chance of being proved a false prophet every time I lay something on it. The chance of it coming to pass becomes more and more remote every time I add something to it. Now, in the Old Testament, there are over 300 prophecies that related to Jesus Christ. His birthplace, his life, his ministry, details of his life, over 300 prophecies that were completely and accurately fulfilled. What are the chance factors of these 300 prophecies being fulfilled by accident? Now, another illustration of this scientific law of compound probabilities. Let us say that one man in 10 is bald-headed. Law of average will get you. How many men would we have to line up against the wall to find a bald-headed man? At random. Chances are, if we line ten men against the wall at random, if one in ten is bald-headed, we should have one bald-headed man. Now let us assume that one man in ten is blind in his right eye. Now, how many men do we have to line up against the wall to get a man who is blind in his right eye and bald-headed? Well, according to the averages, we would need a hundred men lined against the wall. Out of the hundred men lined against the wall, you could pull out ten bald-headed men. From the ten bald-headed men, you should be able to find one who is blind in his right eye. Now, let us say that one man in ten is missing his left thumb. Now, how many men do we have to line against the wall to find a bald-headed man blind in his right eye and missing his left thumb? Theoretically, we would need a thousand men at random. From the thousand men at random, we could get the hundred bald-headed men. From the hundred bald-headed men, uh, we could get the uh, ten who are missing their left thumb. And from the ten missing their left thumb, we could get the one who is also blind in his right eye. And so we could get one man who would fulfill all three requirements. But every time you're adding a stipulation, you must multiply the number of men that you need to fulfill it by the factor, by the chance factors are the variables for that stipulation. So it is possible to take the prophecies concerning Jesus Christ, determine the chance factors at random of their being fulfilled, and then you can determine what the chance factor was that he could have come along and accidentally fulfilled all of these prophecies. Or how many men would you have to have before you could find one who would fulfill all of the requirements of these prophecies? Let's start. Micah, the fifth chapter, the second verse said, And thou, Bethlehem, though thou be little among the provinces of Judah, yet out of thee shall come he who is to rule my people Israel, whose going forth has been from old, from everlasting. The first prophecy that we want to look at is that of his birthplace, because this immediately eliminates most of the people. What is the chance of an individual being born in the city of Bethlehem? How many of you tonight were born in Bethlehem? Chances are none of you were. We don't have enough people. Now, how can you determine the chance factor of a be person being born in Bethlehem? Well, the best thing is to take the average population of Bethlehem with the average population of the world from the time of the prophecy, and you can determine and from the records, the best they can determine, the average population of Bethlehem from the time of the prophecy of Micah to the present day has been less than 7,100 people. It's just a little village. It's growing now. But from that time, the average population has been less than 7,100 and the population of the earth less than 2 billion. So there's only one chance 
in 280,000 of a person being born in the city of Bethlehem. So chances are we could gather people by random. If we gathered 280,000 men by random, chances are we could find one of the 280,000 and he'd say, yeah, I was born in Bethlehem. Now, the Bible said that there would be a man that would go before him, a forerunner who would prepare his way. Now, how many men in history do you know that have had a, has had a man going before him preparing his way? Not very many. Maybe one in a thousand. But just to be conservative, let's say one in a hundred. Now it said that he would make his triumphant entry on a donkey. How many kings in history do you know who made their triumphant entry on donkeys? Most of the time the kings made their triumphant entries on chariots or in white stallions or something like that. But not often a donkey, I'm sure. But let's say one in a hundred just to be conservative. Now it's said that he would be betrayed by a friend. Most people are betrayed by, by their enemies, not often by friends. But then it's said the friend that would betray him would betray him for 30 pieces of silver. Now, how many men in history do you know who were betrayed by friends for 30 pieces of silver? And then it said the silver would be thrown down in the house of the Lord. And it would be used to buy a potter's field. Now, how many men in history do you know who were betrayed by friends for 30 pieces of silver and the silver was thrown down in the Lord's house and then used to buy a potter's field? You see, every stipulation that is added compounds the chance factors. Until a science class in Pasadena College several years ago took as a semester project the determination of certain prophecies by random from the Old Testament that Jesus fulfilled and they sought to discover what were the chance factors of eight prophecies being fulfilled. How many men would you have to have before you found one who would fulfill all eight requirements? And using very conservative estimates they came up with one chance in 2.8 times 10, followed by 28 zeros. But to make it more simple, they knocked off the 2.8. So they cut it in thirds and just said one chance in 10, followed by 28 zeros. Now, in order to be more accurate, we should subtract from that the population factor, which they have estimated to be some 88 billion people. But for uh, easy math's sake, let's say 100 billion people or 1 in 10 to the 11th power subtracted from 10 to the 28th power, it would give you one man in 10 to the 17th power. In other words, you'd have to have 10 men to the 17th power in order to get a man who could fulfill all eight requirements. That's your chance factor. If you had this many silver dollars, you could cover the entire land surface of Texas two feet thick with silver dollars. Now, mark one of those silver dollars and blindfold a fellow and let him start roaming across the state of Texas and one day reach down into that pile of silver dollars and pull up one and take the blindfold off and open his hand and the chance that he would pull out the silver dollar that you had marked would be the same chance that Jesus could have fulfilled those eight prophecies by accident. And so then they took 16 prophecies 
And assuming that the ratio was the same in the next 16, it would be now one chance in 10 to the 45th power, because you've already reduced or taken off the population factor. You don't have to take it off twice. Now, if you had this many silver dollars, you could make a ball of silver dollars that would go 30 times further out than the sun. Now, the sun is 93 million miles away. And you can make a ball that it would extend 30 times as far as the sun. Now, blindfold a guy. And equip him with scuba gear. And let him dive into this ball of silver dollars and swim around and swim around for centuries. And then finally one day grab hold of one of the silver dollars and surface and hold it up and the chance that he would come up with the silver dollar that you had marked would be the same chance factor that Jesus could have just fulfilled the 16 prophecies. So then just to take it totally out of the mental ability to comprehend, they took 48 prophecies. And now you have one chance in 10 to the 157th power. <laughs> That's a number that is so vast that we can't even conceive it. 10 followed by 157 zeros. Now, you couldn't make a ball out of silver dollars. The universe is just not big enough. And so we have to find something smaller now to make our ball. And the smallest thing that we really know for sure, now they, they say that maybe there are even smaller particles than electrons, but... Uh, for all practical purposes, an electron is small enough for us tonight. An electron is one, well, it's actually two and a half quintillionth of an inch long. In other words, if you lined up electrons single file one inch long, it would take 2.5 times 10 to the 15th power electrons. Or two and a half quintillion. If you tried to count them, it would take you 19 million years counting day and night at the rate of 250 a minute. <laughs> Electron is pretty small. Now, can you imagine how many electrons you could put in a one inch cube? Say you made a solid... A, cube, solid cube out of electrons. Man, you could cram a lot of electrons into that. In fact, to count them would take you 19 million years times 19 million years times 19 million years at the rate of 250 a minute counting day and night. Now, let's come back to this number 10 to the 157th power. Let us say we had electrons to work with and we had this many electrons. How big a ball do you think we could make out of electrons? The largest thing we know is the universe. The universe is estimated to be some six billion light years in radius. Or from one end to the other, 12 billion light years. Now, light, we know, travels at the rate of 186,000 miles per second. So the time it takes a ray of light to get from the Earth out to the edge of space, 6 billion years. At that speed of 186,000 miles a second. Now, that's pretty fast. If you could jump on a ray of light, you could actually circle the Earth. What, 25, about seven and a half times in one second. Imagine. 
That's moving. <laughs> Stay on that ray of light for six billion years. And you get out to the edge of space. Now, if we had 10 to the 157th power electrons, we could make a ball that would be as large as the universe in which we live. In fact, if we could go into mass production and make 500 of these balls every minute, we could go on making these balls for the next six billion years. And then we could do that 10 to the 10th time power over again and still have 10 to the 32nd power electrons left over. Now mark one of these electrons. Well, you can't even see it. Random factor of one man fulfilling the 48 prophecies. 10 to the 157th power. But there wasn't just 48. There were over 300. But someone says, well, the prophecies are all so vague. You know, after all, when a person lives, the prophecies are so vague. You say, well, look, here's what it says. You know, and you can fit it in. All right. It said he would be born in Bethlehem. Tell me how vague is that? If he were born in Nazareth, he'd never make it. Born in Hebron, Jerusalem, Bethel, he's out. There's really, to me, nothing vague about being born in Bethlehem. That sounds to me like it's pretty straight on. He would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. That doesn't sound very vague. What if he had said 29? Then Jesus would be out. What if he said 20? Jesus would be out. It said they would pierce his hands and his feet. What if they only pierced his hands? Jesus would be out. Really, they're not so vague. They're pretty precise. In fact, if you talk about precise prophecies, one of the most precise prophecies I know is the prophecy in Daniel, the ninth chapter, where Daniel, by the understanding of the reading of the book of Jeremiah, knew that the 70 years of Babylonian captivity were about over. Now, the Lord had prophesied that the nation Judah was going to go into captivity to Babylon. Jeremiah said, you're going to be there for 70 years and then God is going to bring you back into your land. Now, Daniel, who was in Babylon, taken in the first captivity by Nebuchadnezzar, and was one of the leaders, now that the Medo-Persian Empire had taken over, Daniel realized from the records and the prophecies of Jeremiah that the 70 years were about over, and because he was in a position of governmental authority, he felt that perhaps God would have him to do something in the repatriating of the people back to the land. So Daniel began to fast and pray and wait upon God for whatever God might have for him to do. And while he was waiting upon God, the angel Gabriel appeared unto him and said, O oh, Daniel, thou art greatly loved of God. And when you started to pray and seek God, God sent me to tell you the things concerning the nation Israel. And no one understand this, Daniel. From the time the commandment goes forth to restore and to re build Jerusalem unto the coming of the Messiah, the Prince, will be seven sevens and sixty-two sevens, or a period of 483 years. Now, at the time that Daniel wrote this prophecy, the city of Jerusalem was in shambles. Nebuchadnezzar Adon, the general of Babylon had taken a troop of men. They had gone to Jerusalem. They burnt the temple with fire. They burnt all of the palaces. And then they systematically tore down the walls of the city of Jerusalem, burning things and making really havoc and wreckage of the city. And the city was wasted. But the Lord said, when the commandment goes forth to restore and rebuild Jerusalem to the coming of the Messiah, the Prince, will be seven sevens and sixty-two sevens, or four hundred and eighty-three years. Now, he was living 
in the area where they were still using the Babylonian calendar of 360 days to the year. So if you take the 483 years at 360 days to the year, you actually have 173,880 days. Now, if God is accurate and God's word is accurate, then we should be able to know the day the Messiah was going to come because from the day that the commandment would go forth to restore and rebuild Jerusalem unto the coming of the Messiah, the Prince, would be 173,880 days if God knew what he was talking about. When the archaeologists were digging in the palace of Shushan, they found archaeological, they found records actually by which they know what date was the first day of April that year. Because on the first day of April, in the year 445 BC, King Artaxerxes gave the commandment to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. March 14, 445 BC. Now, starting from March 14th, 445 B.C., the first of Nisan, actually, in the, in, the, in the record. Starting at that date and counting on the calendar 173,880 days brings us to the date of April 6th, 32 A.D. Now, when Jesus was crucified, there was darkness over the land from the sixth hour unto the ninth hour. And it is assumed that the darkness over the land was caused by a total eclipse in that area. And, of course, we are able easily to determine when and where total eclipses are going to take place because the movement of the sun and the moon are constant. So we can tell you in advance, years in advance, where the eclipses are going to take place, when, what dates, the time of the day, and when there are going to be total eclipses. And going back, we can do the same in history. And we know that a total eclipse took place that week of April the 6th. At 12 o'clock until 3 o'clock, they're in Israel. So, going back from the total eclipse to the Sunday before, you have the date April 6th was the Sunday before the total eclipse or the Sunday before the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Hundred and seventy three thousand eight hundred and eighty days from March 14, 445 B.C. to April 6, 32 A.D., taking into account the leap years and uh, the other factors. Now, on April the 6th, 32 A.D., Jesus said to his disciples, go over into the city and you'll find in a certain place a donkey that is tied. Untie him and bring him to me. And when the men say to you, why are you untying that donkey? You just tell them, well, the Lord needs him. And so they went over in the city and where he told them there, they saw the donkey that was tied. And as they started untying him, the fellow standing there said, hey, what are you doing untying that donkey? They said, the Lord needs him. And so they brought the donkey to Jesus there in Bethany. And Jesus sat on the donkey and started riding towards Jerusalem as the disciples began to lay their coats in the pathway, as they began to wave palm branches and they began to quote the 118th Psalm, which is a messianic Psalm. And they said, save now, save now. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The word save now in Hebrew is Hosanna. And so the disciples were crying, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. A quotation from the 118th Psalm, which is a messianic psalm. Peter quotes it as such because the psalm says, this is the stone which was set of not of you builders, but God has made it to be the chief cornerstone. Save now, save now. Read the 118th Psalm and the prophecy concerning Jesus. And the disciples were crying out, this messianic prophecy, save now, save now. And the Pharisees, when they heard what the disciples were saying, turned to Jesus and said, Lord, you better rebuke those disciples. That's blasphemous. 
And Jesus said unto the Pharisees, let me tell you something, fellas. If these disciples would at this time altogether hold their peace and be quiet, these very stones would cry out. Jesus went riding into Jerusalem on that donkey, even as Zacharias said, Behold, thy king cometh unto thee, but he is lowly. He's sitting on a donkey, the foal of an ass. But Jesus was rejected in Jerusalem, and so he came back out to the Mount of Olives, and looking back over the city of Jerusalem, he began to weep, and he said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem. If thou hadst only known the things that belong to thy peace, in this thy day. This was the first day Jesus had ever allowed any public acclamation of himself as the Messiah. Earlier in his ministry, when he had fed the 5,000, they tried to by force take him and make him king, but his time was not yet come and he disappeared out of their midst. This is the first time he allowed any public acclamation. And at this time, he said, if these people were quiet, these very stones would cry out. And then weeping, he said, if you only knew the things that belong to your peace in this thy day, but now they are hid from your eyes. But going back to the prophecy of Daniel, what did he say? He said, but the Messiah will be cut off without receiving the kingdom. Wild. Daniel predicted the very day that the Messiah would come, but then he declared the Messiah would be cut off without receiving his kingdom and the Jews would end up by being dispersed. And thus the prophecy of Daniel was literally fulfilled to the day. Now to me, there's nothing vague about that. What think ye of Christ? Whose son is he? You see, there's just an awful lot of evidence to indicate that he was indeed the son of God. In fact, the evidence is overwhelming. Now, Jesus was always making radical statements. Statements that forced you into an opinion. One day, Mary and Martha had sent an urgent message to Jesus when he was down at the Jordan River. They lived in Bethany. And it was two days from Bethany to the Jordan River. And their message said, Come quickly, the one you love is sick. Jesus got the message and stayed at the Jordan River for two more days and then said to his disciples, Come, let's go to Bethany and see Lazarus. And by the time he made the two-day journey to Bethany, Lazarus had already died and been buried four days earlier. And Martha came out of the village and met him as he was entering into the village. And she said, Lord, if you would only have been here, my brother would not have died. Politely, she was saying, hey, where were you when we needed you? Why didn't you come when we called? Didn't you get the message that said urgent? What took you so long to get here? Lord, if you'd only have been here, my brother would not have died. You can hear a little bitterness in that. But Jesus said, Martha, your brother's going to live again. So, yes, Lord, I know on the last day of the great resurrection... Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. And he that believeth on me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And he who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? What does Jesus do? He immediately cuts the line. You either believe it or you don't. You see, he immediately separates people into two categories. 
those who believe it and those who don't believe it. There's no fence to sit on. You either do or you don't. It's just that sharp and plain. Believest thou this? Now, imagine anybody else in history making that statement. Imagine Nero saying, Fellow Romans, lend me your ears. I have a pronouncement to make unto you. I am the resurrection and the life. He that believes on me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And he who lives and believes in me shall never die. <laughs> no problem, you'd say, Nero's a madman, he's crazy. He's insane. What if Napoleon had made the statement? <laughs> I am the resurrection and the life. He that believes on me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And he who lives and believes in me shall never die. You'd say Napoleon's insane. He's deluded. He's out of his gourd. What if I would stand up here tonight and say, listen, friends, I want to share something with you. Keep this confidential, but I'm the resurrection and the life. And if you believe on me, you'll never die. Yeah, you'd say. <laughs> you'd say, man, that guy's a few bricks short of a load. Hey, you know, if anybody else in history would make that statement, you'd have no problem with it at all. You'd just immediately dismiss it. You'd say, oh, wild, preposterous. But because of who Jesus Christ is, you can't just pass it off lightly. Because of all of the prophecies that preceded him, you can't just slough it off. You just can't say, well, you know, it really challenges you. Now, he either is or he isn't. He either does or he doesn't. And when he said, believest thou this, immediately he draws the line and either you believe it or you don't. And you have life or you don't have life. Just that plain. Peter said, oh, how I thank God that he has begotten us again unto a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now, of course, the whole thing is this. Jesus rose from the dead. And it creates a living hope. And then Peter said, hey, we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we declared unto you the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, but we were eyewitnesses. Now, this story of the resurrection of the dead what must we assume? Well, very easily, it's either true or it's not. Either Jesus rose or he didn't rise. And if he didn't rise from the dead, really, then we have to assume that the disciples got together and made up a real neat story. And they said, OK, guys, you got to swear. Let's take our blood and we'll mix our blood and we'll all of us swear, you know, rub our wrist. Nobody, nobody, but nobody squeals. We hang to this story, fellas. We all of us vow that it's true. We're going to all say that we saw the resurrected Christ. And no matter what they do to us, we're going to hang on to this story and we're going to keep it straight. Nobody gives in. And so they went out and they began to say, 
Hey, Jesus is alive. We saw him. Now, one by one, they took these fanatics who were saying that they saw the resurrected Jesus and they put them to death violently because they were saying that Jesus was alive. He rose again. First of all, James, they, they took and cut his head off with a sword. Because he said Jesus rose from the dead. Later, they took Peter and crucified him upside down because he said Jesus rose from the dead. Later, they severed Paul the apostle's head because he said, I saw the risen Lord too. James, the other James, they actually drug by his feet up and down the steps until his brains were dashed out on the pavement because he said, I saw the risen Lord. Another one of the disciples, they tied by his feet to a horse and they drove the horse through the city until his body was just dragged to death on the streets. And each one of these disciples, with the exception of John, suffered a violent death. Because they were all declaring the same thing. Jesus rose from the dead. We saw him. Now, wouldn't it be easier for your position of unbelief if just one of these guys had cracked? Hey, hey, stop, fellas. Let me tell you the truth. It's all a big hoax. <laughs> if just one of them had done that. Then you would have a position for your unbelief. You could say, yeah, but look at this guy. You see, when he really faced a man, he, he told the truth. But these stubborn, hard-headed guys, not one of them confessed. Pretty powerful evidence. Because it was interesting when Satan expressed to God his philosophy concerning man... Through observation, Satan said, skin for skin, all a man has will he give for his skin. And pretty much that's true. When it really comes down to a life and death matter, man, you'll do about anything to save your life. And if these fellows could have saved their life, and they could have by saying it's a lie, Jesus didn't rise from the dead. They could have saved their lives by saying that, but none of them did. All of them went to their deaths affirming that they had seen the risen Christ. So Peter said, we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we declared unto you the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, but we were actually eyewitnesses of his glory. Man, I saw it with my eyes. But then he said something very interesting. He said, but we have the more sure word of prophecy, what I was talking about earlier. Really more sure than what I can see with my eyes is the fact that Jesus fulfilled these prophecies totally far beyond any chance factor. The more sure word of prophecy. And so, ultimately, and always, it comes back to this. It's your judgment decision. What think ye of Christ? Whose son is he? The son of God? Or the son of some man? And your decision and your belief determines your eternal destiny. With all of the evidence to show that he is indeed the Son of God, it seems to me awful foolish to believe anything else. Finally, you have the witness of the majority of people here tonight and millions of people throughout the world who will say to you, He is the Son of God. He is alive today. I have experienced His power in my life. How can you account for the dramatic changes that take place in people's lives? 
if it's all a hoax, if he was just a fraud, if he was a bastard. And yet that's what you are saying if you do not believe that he is the Son of God. What think ye of Christ? Whose son is he? If he is indeed the Son of God, then tonight there is hope for this world. We have a glorious future to look forward to. It isn't all empty and vain and dark and hopeless. But there's a bright tomorrow coming. He promised it to us. If he is the son of God, then surely you should commit your life to him. You have everything to gain and nothing to lose except your old, rotten, sinful self, which is sort of nice to get rid of. Shall we pray? We thank you, Father, for the evidence that you have given to us concerning your Son, Jesus Christ. That you spoke about it so many years in advance, giving the details and the facts so that when he did come, there needed to be no doubt concerning the truth about Jesus. May we tonight, Lord, open our hearts and our lives to receive the truth and to receive Jesus Christ into our lives as our Lord, as our Savior.